Hey guys, it's Tats here from Castagra, and welcome to the Specified Growth Podcast. Each week, I talk to leaders and experts about how to overcome adversity, grow massive organizations, and how to create meaningful change in the building materials and coatings industry. Today's guest is Bob Weygandt. He's the founder of Summix Design. Bob, thanks for coming on the show. Oh, happy to, happy to join, Tats. I heard a bit about you. Our mutual, our mutual friend connected us, and I thought it would be a great opportunity. Yeah, so you, you've been involved in the, the construction and sort of design side for a very long time. And I, I heard that you started, started this in university, I guess, on the contracting side? Yeah, well, I mean, actually, before then, really, I, I yeah, when I was in high school, I took my first construction job doing EFs siding on houses, and I was really into it. I was I was excited to be going to college for engineering, and then found that I really enjoyed actually working on houses, and so I worked my way through college doing that, and it was a lot of it was a lot of fun. I learned a lot. And about my third year in school, I decided to say, you know what, I don't want to be a civil engineer. I love all of the knowledge that I've gathered, but I felt more fulfilled actually actually working on and more so fixing houses. Mm. And I've always I've always had an affinity for roofing and waterproofing. A lot of it is back then I was a rock climber. I loved heights. I loved being in sort of dangerous places and <laughs> And it was really great. So I continued on with that through high school or through college, after college. And when I was about, I guess it was 2000. So I was 27 and I fell through a ladder and I blew out my knee. Oh, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't pretty. It wasn't pleasant. But the long and the short was my doctor said that if you don't get out of this this career now, you won't have a career at 45. And he was right. He was absolutely right. And I also, at that point, you know, I also realized that I was, I was more capable than my hammer. I could do a lot more than swing a hammer. And I thought I would be of a better use to the industry with the development side of things. I started work using AutoCAD when I was 14 years old on version four. So I've got a long running long-running view of, of the CAD systems that are out there. And then after I, you know, after I left roofing, I realized, well, I, I had to get a job somewhere. I had to do something. And what I knew more than anything for 12 years or eh, now maybe, maybe 11 years at that point of doing roofing was that it's what I really understood more than anything. So I went to it actually took me a year of sending my resume to GAF before they even gave me an interview. And my a woman that I hold in such high regard, Lynn Pacone, she manages sort of the contractor services of, of GAF. And she hired me on the spot. She said, we need more people like you. And I just sort of worked my way through the company developing roof systems and specifications and doing their CAD work, basically 
their architectural information systems. I ran that. And then well, what, what, after about five or six years. Yeah. What, what appealed, what was your appeal of going to GF? Because you said you were trying for a year, which is, and you finally got the, the meeting and you got hired, but what was your appeal of GAF? What, what did you have in your mind? Oh, honestly, I wanted to be involved with, with the development of roof systems. And I was living in New Jersey. GAF was based out of New Jersey, three, four towns away. And I had been installing their roofing for a decade. So I knew the products. I knew what, from the low slope to the steep slope, I knew all of their products inside and out. So I thought it would be a dovetail fit. And it turned out to be, other than I don't do well with corporate. I don't like corporate politics and, and climbing the ladder. I'm a, I'm a capitalist. I'm, a, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm an idea smith. I've always got ideas in the fire, whether I run with them, whether they make money or not. The most important thing is whether it benefits the industry. Mm. And that's really what I look for. And GAF, I stuck with them for five years before I said I can't do corporate anymore. But the amount that they taught me along the way was invaluable, even more so than even more so than any college experience that I ever could have imagined. It was fantastic. Mm. It was a great experience working for them. Yeah. What what did you learn in that five years? Well, I mean, I learned about the different types of roof systems that I hadn't been working on. Like I I was doing I was doing single ply roofing, but being in the Northeast, it was primarily EPDM. So I learned all about TPO and PVC roofing. They put me, they put me in front of specifications for the first time in my life. I had never seen them before. I had never worked with them before. And after an exercise of managing 1,200 specifications of theirs, I developed an intimate knowledge of at least the division seven aspect of specs. And I was always very interested in it. I'm like, you know, these documents are great. I like all this technical data. I, I geek out on it. So when I left GAF, I took that knowledge, mainly the specifications and the additional, the additional learning on the different CAD platforms that were out there. And I went to work as an independent consultant, writing specifications, developing CAD files, and helping manufacturers, because most manufacturers don't know how to do this type of documentation. They're great with their marketing, they're great with their their you sort of R&D technical, but when you have to bridge that gap between your technical people and the end customer, there's a major translation that's gotta happen. and because I speak manufacturer and contractor and specifier and architect, I can speak all of those language. I can act as a translator for all those people. So being able to write those documents in such a way that they meet the technical, they meet the technical requirements, but they're also approachable documents so that you can actually read them and benefit from them rather than it just being a, a 25-page section that will last for four days during bidding and then end up in a closet somewhere. Yeah. So your process, I guess, is about understanding what manufacturers are capable and what customers are looking for and trying to put 
and a spec together that sort of achieves both? Is that kind of the process? Well, I mean, the spec is the spec. It has to have certain technical aspects to it. But what many people don't really understand is that you do have a lot of, of latitude to p- position your products in such a way that they are a perceived benefit over your competition. And this is where you, you showcase the items that are of real benefit to, your, to the end user, and you, you downplay the shortcomings. The things that, well, they're, they're, you're not the best in the market with your VOC levels, but it's not important to every single person that's out there. So you downplay that. And then you focus on, on what you are good at and you get that front and center. So you're, you're fully transparent. You're following all of the, you're following all of the, the technical requirements and standards and formats, but you're able to put it, put it together in such a way that your documentation speaks to your marketing message along with meeting the, the architect's requirements. Explaining sort of highlighting and downplaying as it pertains to a document, how would you achieve that while maintaining your transparency uh, aims? Okay, so an example, like uh, I'm actually working on a, on a coding specification at, uh, just before we got on this call. <laughs> and they have they have sort of ancillary products that go into the specification. And those ancillary products are higher VOCs, but they're not a part of the overall system. So you, what you want to do is you want to you show the VOCs that are a part of the overall system because that's really what people are looking for. When you get into things like, like VOCs of products that are used for nighttime tie-ins, you need to have the information about the nighttime tie-in there, but that product isn't going to live there forever. So you don't necessarily need to, to put that front and center. A bigger part of it, though, is understanding the loss leaders. Every company has their loss leader products that they lose money on, but they have to sell. Just because you sell them doesn't mean you need to specify them. You could actually eliminate those from your specs altogether in favor of a higher of a higher caliber product or a product that you would prefer people use and then eliminate those those sort of builder grade products in favor of a of a better solution. Mm. It's a it's a double edged sword because usually when that happens the costs go up and then your your bidding it gets it gets to be a little unbalanced. But I work with each client individually to understand their marketing message what their loss leaders are, where they make their money, and how they go to market so that I can, I can position the individual products within that document in such a way that they, it's a, the question becomes, why wouldn't I use this system over some other system? Yeah. So loss leaders, the reasons for loss leaders, is it... What are the main drivers? Is it sort of the single source kind of loss leaders or like, give me some examples of certain loss leaders that you see. Okay. Roofing industry, ply four. Ply four is, it's a cheap material. It does the job, but companies make no money on it. They have to sell it because it's a part of a standardized roof system, but it's, it's a loss leader. 
they every for every roll they sell, they're they're not making money. They want to sell ply six. Not that much asphalt roofing is done these days, but first one that comes to mind are items like that. It, you know, using another good example. I mean, you know, you see it a lot in sealants where you'll have like good, better, best sealant. You don't want to sell the good. You want to sell the best, but you'll settle for the better. So what you do is you downplay the good by either putting at the bottom of the list or having it as sort of a, a possible product in the arsenal to choose from, but not necessarily uh, putting it into each individual system that you're kind of specking out. Mm. And so it's sort of offering the options that will capture project, even at reduced margin, if there is some sort of bias or preference towards a certain type of methodology, but also putting your recommended one, your high margin one in there and try to promote that, but just so that they don't go somewhere else for a solution just because there is some preference towards certain certain materials. Exactly. And, you know, you take a Title 24 coating versus an aluminum coating. You, the aluminum coating, nobody, I don't know anybody that's probably making a ton of money on aluminum coating. But Title 24 is the hot item. It's an essential item and it's a part of a system. So you build the Title 24 into the coating system, but you make the aluminum coating as a as sort of a, an ancillary option that could be made in the event that price was a consideration and Title 24 could be removed from the overall picture. I get it. You just you just keep the conversation open so they understand that you're you're available to provide an option for them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So I guess when you came into, you talked to, you talked a little bit about this, but when you came into GF, there's all sorts of great things that you learned. What are the, some of the things that are a challenge for GF or any big company as the, you know they're managing a sort of a huge organization? Well, I mean, one is when there are changes to the industry, larger companies aren't as agile. So they can't, they can't be in front of the market as quickly as a smaller player can. So with respect to innovation, it takes them more time and they calculate risk a little bit more diligently than a small company that's looking to grow. Um, you know, the larger companies, they're going to, you know, they're going to be, uh, they're going to be sticking with the proven systems. Whereas the smaller guys are the ones that are going to bring larger or bring innovative systems to the market and then either get absorbed by the GAFs of the world or become the next GAF of the world where they're able to, to grow based on a great idea. And these are the types of people that I absolutely love to work with. The Everyone loves an underdog story. <laughs> and I love working with the underdogs. I'm a, I've been an underdog all my life. I'm a risk taker when it comes to business. I like having skin in the game. And when I succeed, I make money. When I fail, I try again. And that's, you know, with a, bigger companies have a harder time with embracing new technology. And that's where we're headed. It took a long time for manufacturers to adopt TPO because it was unproven. Even though PVC what had all sorts of problems with plasticizer migration, they had problems with 
with environment and they needed a better solution. So they looked at the dashboards of cars and said, TPO, this stuff will, this stuff will withstand the sun. The downside is that it's expensive, but it lasts and it works. So I think, I think new technology is one of the bigger problems. Skew reduction always seems to be an issue with these, with the larger firms also, where they have so many products and they're trying to be everything to everybody. And there's something nice about that, but you have to be fully staffed to do it. You've got to have technical experts from end to end. Happily, GAF did and still does. I mean, I have I have friends that are still over there that 15 years later, they're still they're still moving up in the company and doing really great things. And they're looking at technology, but they're looking at somebody else's technology that was already brought into the market. So they're not innovating. They are they're bringing it to the mainstream. So they do serve that purpose is to make an innovative idea mainstream because it takes money to make money. And these companies do have the capital to back a good idea, but they're not necessarily willing to take the risk of failing on that idea. Mm, yeah, you brought up a good point, fully staffed with all these products. Was, was sort of technical knowledge dissemination an issue with, with contractors? Like if, if you have reps or technical people, how many lines could they possibly understand and know? Did you, was that a challenge? It was actually my first job at GAF, yeah. was bridging the gap between the contractor and GAF. So the contractor had questions on how you do this, how you do that, and I would, I would talk them through it. Sometimes they were on a roof and I'm on a phone. Sometimes I would send an email or back then I would actually fax them documents <laughs> of uh, you know, the, the details that you would use and send it over to them. So the challenge is there, but with the right approach and the right people, it's easily overcome. Yeah. And how much of the, the stuff, it sounds like you're on the technical side, but how much of the advisory stuff came from the sales team or were the sales team more dedicated on opening new business and expanding that relationship? Or was there, was there a crossover where you would educate the sales team? Yeah. I mean, we definitely would, we definitely would educate the sales team and they, but they were focused primarily on sales. GAF had an entire field technical services department that handled all of that stuff. And they were, they were positioned within their territory. So each territory would have a sales rep and a technical rep. So, and we would all work together. Like I would handle, I would handle the Southeast region of the country. That, that was my territory to work. And I'll tell you what, I learned more about roofing, handling the Southeast because of Miami-Dade, FBC, because I, I was working for them from 2001 to 2005, or 2000 to 2005. And that was when all of the Dade, where, when all the, the Dade County requirements and FBC, Hurricane, HVHZ stuff started coming into play. When ICC was formed from Boca, ICBO, and when all of these combined, I was I got thrown right into the middle of that as it was happening. So it was an exciting time and, it, and an exciting experience for me. Oh, wow. So Southeast, that's quite a large. Did you have a team or did you have to sort of navigate that whole area yourself? Well, no, I was, I was in an office in Wayne, in, in Wayne, New Jersey. 
but I had a team of technical reps that I, I did, they didn't work for me, but I liaised with both the technical reps and the sales reps to basically get everybody on the same page. So I was kind of acting as a go-between for the contractor, corporate, sales, and technical to act to kind of wrangle a situation as it occurs. Yeah, that makes sense. So you said sales rep and a technical rep, and then that that combination plus you at the office, there's further assistance with files and all these things, right? Coordination between the information. I see that sort of- Exactly, because I had all the documentation at my fingertips. So I'm like, I'm like Tank in the Matrix sitting there just waiting to dial up and now the sales rep knows Kung Fu. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. I'm always curious about this with the sales rep tech combo. Was it like per state or were they with certain states divvied up into smaller? I always wonder how, how much a team can really support an area. Like how, 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 how is it divided up? Uh, it all depends on the, the, on the density and yeah. how much of a, of a market, market hold GAF had. Dade County, for instance, one rep, all he did was Dade County. Oh, wow. Because, yeah, because they, we had that much work. And he was, to this day, he very well may be the best sales rep, the best roofing sales rep that ever was. Wow. Yeah, he passed away recently. He was yeah. a brilliant, brilliant guy, Dario Miranda. Yeah. Loved working with him. Great, you know, knew his stuff. And that's really what that's really what I appreciated was he didn't need my assistance. All he needed was he just needed to call up and say, Hey, can you send this, 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 and this to over to advanced roofing? Done. Yeah. And so I was kind of doing his bidding. But other reps that that were not as proficient, I would be actually taking what I learned from him and being able to pass that on to the other reps in my region to to be able to sort of help all of them learn from each other. So there was a lot of really cool cross-platform and cross-training that was going on. Yeah. I, you know, and I never really realized all of that was happening until I went and looked back several years later. But I said, I get it now. And it was a really good approach for for managing this type of, of arrangement where you have so many people in something that is so important to the industry. I mean, that roof, you're protecting a multi-million dollar asset. And it is the first line of defense and the last line of defense. So it's got to be done right. Yeah. So we dot our I's, cross our T's and work with the contractor to make sure they do the same. Yeah. So even now, is is Day County still extremely important or is that sort of diminished over the years? I've been removed from GAF for a long time, 15 years at this point. So I know it's a it's a major market. Yeah. Specification wise, does it have that influence? Like I hear a lot about Dade and you know we're involved in roofing. So yeah, no, I mean, you, you know, you still, you know, Dade County, Florida Building Code, Texas Department of Insurance, FM Global, UL, these are, these are the items that rule the day for that region specifically. I mean, Texas is not so much the same region, but they had the same issues where not with wind, though, but with hail. Uh, they were getting so much hail that they needed to ensure that 
the roofs would be able to withstand whatever came down on it. Yeah, for sure. So you talked about entrepreneurs and we just talked about big companies, but for these entrepreneurial companies, where do they need to spend time improving? Understanding their own limitations. Mm. They can't do it all. And they're not in the business of documentation. You make no no money on specs. You make no money on CAD. You make no money on BIM. You make no money on data sheets. They should be focusing on making money and sourcing out getting this work done. If they happen to have the proficiency to write specs and do this CAD work, great. But there are so many gotchas and pitfalls that finding somebody that that's proficient in doing these, in getting these elements to them is a very important aspect. Because when you're launching a new product, you've got one chance to get it right. And if you don't get it right, it's going to fall on its face or the soft launch is kind of gone. And it's, I think the soft launch went away with the concept of the patent. Now you can still patent things, but it's not race to the USPTO anymore. It's race to market. Mm. So, So you cannot rest on your laurels and wait for a patent before you get that to market. And if you get that part in patent, great. If not, I mean, you're still gonna be able to, to sell that product. It's just not going to be something that's necessarily patented. And that, you know, I see I see the race to market as being far more important than the race to the U.S. Patent Office. Okay, interesting points. Now, let's sort of drill down on that just a little bit more. So launching. So you're saying soft launch is dead. It's just go to the market hard. Now, for smaller companies, there seems to be focus that's required, because even if you can get into market, you have to be able to stay there which is sort of sort of competitive strategy. How does a smaller firm sort of narrow their focus enough or how should they narrow their focus so that they can be effective with a, a big launch? Because they can't tackle the entire market in one shot. So how do you, how do you, co- do you coach people through that? Like targeting certain specs, regulations, geographic regions, certain categories of buyers. Yeah, that's the kind of coaching that that I do for free is it comes along with with the kinds of services that I provide is is having them look at what products, you know, what products they make the most money on. And most importantly, finding where those fit into where the big guys fall short. So the gaps that the big guys are leaving are often some of the biggest money makers because those gaps are they're often left because the type of system is designed for smaller projects and a smaller company should be starting with smaller projects when you've got a new idea you don't want to put it on a Walmart distribution center you want to put this on a small strip mall and see how it works so every company's going to be different and every because everybody's go to market strategy is different and everybody's sort of core product lines are different if they're you know you look at the products that you make the most money on and from there you figure out where those can be targeted and in the in the case of a system like a coding system it may only be one product that you really need to focus on and then the other ones you're not making a ton of money but you're making good money on this 
where is this not being leveraged at its best? And you find that out by by looking at what's missing from the offerings of the big guys. And then you you penetrate the market by by picking up their scraps. <laughs> then all of a sudden the contractors that had been that had been using company A and realized that your system can not only work with what they were doing with company A, but it also does it with these little guys. Now you built a contractor who's going to be with you, who's going to stick with you because you've worked with them. That's the other part is work with your contractors. Specification is great, but do you know how many, do you know how many building products an architect buys every year? Uh, how much? <laughs> Zero. <laughs> Architects don't buy anything. Contractors do. So when when you focus on getting spec'd, you have to follow that because the specification does not equal a sale. It equals a spec. And it means that you're you're being listed in a bid. But that doesn't mean that the contractor who won the bid, who has a preference for your competitor, is not yeah. going to try to flip that over to something else. Yeah. So you want to you want to make sure not only that you not only that you work with your specifiers, but you help your contractors so that they can flip those bids on your behalf. Yeah. So if the spec is your competitor, you come in with your or equal and you work with the, you go back to the architect with a submittal package and a substitution request and you get your product listed in that way. That was actually something that GAF taught me one of the first things. When I started managing their information, their architectural information services, my whole role was to build submittal packages so that their preferred contractors could submit substitution requests with the architects. That's the whole goal was to do that. So that's one area that I think a lot of contractors or a lot of manufacturers overlook is focusing on helping your contractor change the spec to you. Yeah, no, that's that's uh, critical. That's awesome. Now, yeah, you, you gave us a, a very good rundown of everything. I mean, is there anything else that that comes to mind that you want to you want to pass on? Wow, I'm a stream of consciousness thinker. So it will probably come up and I'll let you know, similar <laughs> to how I just let you know about the contractor part in GAF. You know, these sorts of things just kind of kind of come up. I mean, there are so many aspects to to getting a new product into the market. There's technical documentation. There's who's going to who's going to be my champion, which is sort of how I view the architect. They're your champion. And then who is going to be my customer? Now, you could look at your customer as being the contractor, or you could look at your customer as being the owner, depending on how you go to market. And that's really your marketing method. If you're, if you're focusing on the owner, and then the owner picks the contractor and you go through, that's one way. If you're focusing on the contractor, and then the contractor influences the architect or is influenced by the architect, that's another method. So depending on what somebody's strategy is, there's a way to do it for everybody, but it's so customized and it really needs to be. It's not a lot of work to do that customization. It's just thought that 
it's understanding all of these different markets and all of these different sort of silos of individuals that should be working together and collaborating, but aren't. And that's one thing that I've been really, really wanting to foster is better collaboration through the industry, which is why I got into BIM as much as I did with specifications about 10 years or 12 years ago, getting into the whole element of BIM and information management of products and bridging gaps between all these project members. Yeah, that's wonderful. Bob, thank you. Your wealth of information. Uh, we could probably go on for another hour, but uh, <laughs> but uh, we'll have to catch up some other time on this. But uh, I appreciate you coming on and sharing your knowledge. Oh, I'm happy to help. Thanks for having me on, Tat. I want to thank everyone for listening to Specify today. also want to thank the listeners who are working hard each day to change the world to make it a better place. If you know anyone, anyone that would benefit from this episode, please pass it along. And finally, make sure you subscribe to hear upcoming episodes. Talk to you soon. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.